But fundamentally, you know, a board of directors has to make sure that the business is viable. Is it making more money than it's having to spend? It's got to be looking to the future. What is going to change? What's going to impact their business? You're trading during a global pandemic of the type that we haven't seen before. Hello everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This episode is sponsored by the University of Law. The University of Law offers a range of undergraduate and postgraduate courses and master's degrees alongside an award-winning pro bono clinic so you can build up your legal experience while studying. And their experienced career service will enable you to put your best foot forward when launching your legal career. The courses are employment focused and based on real legal practice so you'll be better prepared for the workplace. Part-time and online study Options are available so you can work and study at the same time. Click the link in the description box of the podcast to find out more about the courses on offer. Hello everyone, welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast. My name is Stephanie, I'm an LLB law student, I'm a future trainee solicitor and I am the host of today's episode. With me today is Alex J, partner and head of insolvency and asset recovery at Stewart's. During the episode, Alex and I discussed the collapse of Misguided, the OG of fast fashion retailers, and some of the commercial and legal issues which may have impacted its fall into administration. So thank you for joining me here today, Alex. It's wonderful to have you as a guest on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here too. So we're going to be talking about the circumstances around Misguided, uh, one of the first fashion retail, one of the first um, fast fashion retailers, which recently fell into administration. But before we do move on to uh, the questions focusing on that, uh, Alex, if you could just please introduce yourself and your practice. Sure, no problem at all. Um, as you have said, I'm Alex J. I'm a partner at Stewart's, and I head up the insolvency and asset recovery side of the commercial disputes practice here. So Stewart's is a litigation-only practice. We're the UK's largest litigation-only practice, in fact. So we run only high-value, complex pieces of litigation across a variety of spheres. And in terms of the area that I specialise in, that tends to focus on disputes arising from insolvent or distressed situations. And so by that, I mean any scenario where there has been an insolvency or a pre-insolvency event like a restructuring, if there is a dispute about it, then we might get involved. The other part of the work that we do on the asset recovery side is aimed at assisting clients who, for one reason or another, have lost money or valuable property assets of one sort or another, and they want to get them back. 
And the reason that those types of cases sit within our department is because apart from coming up with innovative strategies to try to recover assets, particularly quirky assets that end up in overseas jurisdictions, we often use insolvency as a means to recover those assets. It can be quite a powerful tool if you need to gather information about where assets have gone, which you often do in the type of case I work on. Hopefully that's enough of a uh, background to me. Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds very interesting and it does sound like you need to be very creative in in finding ways to recover these assets. So um, it does sound like you have a very, um, you know, fascinating role. Well, thank you. Um, I, you know, well, I like to think so. <laughs> so moving now on to the misguided um, section of the podcast, what do you think the key commercial and legal difficulties uh, concerning the misguided board of directors in the lead up to the collapse were? Well, taking those two points in turn, if I may, um, you know, there's a question around the commercial the commercial aspects of misguided and and what became of it. And then there's a question around the position of the board of directors, and I'll take them in turn if that works well for you. I'm not a retail expert, but you can see that you know misguided as a as a brand developed very quickly and particularly off the back of the pandemic. You know, it's an online, largely as I understood it, fashion brand, and it got a lot of traction, some of it as I understand it through associations and you know famous people wearing their clothes on things like love island and you know stuff like that and it did very very well at a time when online sales obviously went went through the roof the challenges it had as i understand it and this is just based on what i know from the press i have no insider you know views on this particularly but you know if you do very well in the online space, you're in a very competitive market in retail and you are competing against organizations that have been in the business for a very long time. They have a lot of expertise. They also have a lot of capital to compete with you in ways that you know, can be difficult, especially if you are a startup with inherently, you know, limited funds and, and, you know, perhaps limited experience. You know, I don't mean that in a derogatory way at all to the misguided board of directors. But, you know, fundamentally, it seems that on the back of coming out of the pandemic as, you know, a move back to shopping at shops with a physical presence, as well as the online options changed to a degree it was harder for misguided to keep up with that. And of course, you have your much more established organizations with a large operational spread with, um, you know, already an existing network of physical stores as well as online stores. And of course, those guys are looking at the challenges, the misguided, the ASOSs, the boohoos, you know, all those types of organization that are in a similar sort of space. And, you know, they're thinking, well, there's no reason why we can't do what they can do. Uh, and that, I, I suspect, on the commercial side was the areas that became difficult for them and that have caused them problems. You asked a question about the board of 
directors and the legal difficulties. Boards of directors owe duties to act in the best interests of their company that they are appointed over. There's a number of specific duties that directors owe under the Companies Act, among other places, um, that you can go and you know look up if people are, are interested. But fundamentally, you know, a board of directors has to make sure that the business is viable. Is it making more money than it's having to spend? It's got to be looking to the future. What is going to change? What's going to impact their business? Retail can be a very fast-moving operation. You're trading during a global pandemic of the type that we haven't seen before, frankly, um, in modern times. All of those things are hugely challenging. And, you know, from the board of directors' point of view, trying to manage all of those things to make sure you have a long-term sustainable business that is compliant with your duties as a board. Um, you know, and let's not forget things like the ESG agenda, the environmental, social and governance agenda that boards of directors have to consider too. You know, there's a lot of things on a board of directors plate. One of the important things that's relevant in the insolvency context for a board of directors is that when you say in very broad terms, a board owes duties to act in the best interests of the company. A company really is the members of the company, either shareholders. That's what the company is. Company is, in effect, its shareholders, you know, in one sense. And when a company is solvent, board has to act in a way that's going to maximize their interest as well as the other, you know, duties under the Companies Act they have. If a company is insolvent or at risk of becoming insolvent, then the board's duties can shift. And there's case law that deals with this. And the duties shift so that the board has to act in a way that is, in general terms, in the best interest of the creditors. Because once your company is insolvent, the people who have the most interest in what happens to that company are its creditors. Because inherently, an insolvent company means not everyone is going to get paid. And so it's the creditors really that care about the company. The shareholders have no interest because there isn't going to be any money for the shareholders because the company doesn't have any money. And those are the kind of things that in what is often called in insolvency circles, the twilight zone, when a company is not sure whether it's insolvent or not, and you know maybe it's insolvent if things go badly, maybe it's not insolvent if things go well. Those are the kind of things that boards of directors typically think about very carefully. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, just touching on the commercial aspects that you were talking about, um, when you were saying how misguided, you know, sponsored Love Island, I, I believe, like, from doing little bits of research um, around this, um, discovered that misguided shot to fame from um sponsoring sorry misguided shot to fame when sponsoring love island um and the way that um the kind of climate is changing where millennials gen z are more interested or interested in uh, more sustainable fashion. I just think that the interest in fast fashion is going down. Um, and I haven't seen any Love Island this year, but I hear that um, 
I hear that before this whole, um, before Misguided went into administration before um, any of this happened. Love Island actually dropped Misguided for, I think it was eBay, sustainable fashion, um, purely because one of the contestants that has a really large social media following um, refused to wear the clothes. And because Misguided sponsored the show, all the um, contestants wore the clothing. And yeah, I mean, the decline you can see in the fast fashion industry it was going down anyway. Um, and what you spoke about when you spoke about um, the the board's experience. Now, I don't really know too much about the board of directors, but I know that the CEO, uh, Nitin, he self-made, uh, launched Misguided with just, I think, a £50,000 loan. Um I don't think he'd ever worked in another company before, but um, after doing some research on him, it seems like he was quite frivolous in his spending and just spent money here, here, here and there. Um, uh, Very expensive trips all around the world for a single photo shoot that ended up getting banned um, because it wasn't ESG, I suppose, friendly. So, yeah, I I do agree with everything that you you mentioned in the commercial aspects. Um, And just touching on the director's duties, I found that quite interesting when you talked about acting for the best interest of the shareholders. Um, You know, it sounds like their best interest is to make the money and to also future-proof their business as well. And I suppose that kind of links to the ESG matters. You know, Misguided is is not ESG-friendly and um, I I thought that was quite plain to see from you know the throwaway fashion and also um you know the way they treat their employees you know the scandal that broke in 2017 well well, look those are all interesting points and you know perhaps to go slightly off topic but you know maybe it's interesting you know more widely um you know esg agendas so the environmental social and government and governance agendas for boards of directors is something they have to be mindful of because you know those are duties that fall on boards of directors to have those issues in mind you know that's point number one you know the wider point of course is there's obviously a huge not league not purely legal but social and societal importance and obviously interest in sustainable products in a number of different industries you know the clothing industry sure and you know other industries as well um i can't speak to the i I don't know any of the details genuinely about misguided product lines and where they come from and the way they're developed and whether or not they are esg friendly or, or not so i don't know but you know you can certainly see that if you if you're if you're not producing products with in line with that then that is going to be something that your customer base is going to look at increasingly and that happens in all walks of industry you know it doesn't just happen in fashion and retail it happens everywhere um and rightly so of course you know this, these are important things that affect everybody and you know we get asked about it as a law firm businesses will be asked about about it you know esg as an issue for 
for example, investment organizations who promote investment opportunities that are ESG compliant. Uh, and, you know, this means people being encouraged to invest their money in ways that is ultimately their money gets put into projects which are helpful for the environment or, you know, on a social or government kind of level. And obviously, if they're promised that and their money is not invested in that way, then, you know, that can be a problem for ob- obvious reasons. So this is, you know, that particular bit of this misguided case is something that we will see increasingly um, over the years. I expect, you know, ESG to be an issue that features across a number of different industries in the coming years. Thank you for sharing that. Um, What do you think the directors could have done to uh, mitigate the collapse? Um, It's hard for me to answer that one you know, in any meaningful way, because I'm not a retail expert. Um, obviously, focusing on the focusing on their customers, focusing on what's core to their customers, focusing on what is going to be important as a business to drive sales. Um, you know, if money was, you know, spent unwisely, I don't know whether that's true or not. But, you know, all of those types of things as a business, you have to focus on ultimately who are your customers? What do they expect? And you have to keep your finger on the pulse. I mean, fashion. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in fashion, but it's a very fast-moving industry, and so you know, adapting and being able to adapt to customers' changing tastes and needs and issues that they are concerned with is going to be absolutely paramount. And perhaps they haven't done that. And you know, competitors such as the Boohoo's and Others who operate a similar largely online market, you know, you can return your clothes easily, that that sort of thing, seem to have done better so far. Do you think that the recent COVID, I can never say this word, so I'm going to say it really fast and hopefully it just rolls off the tip of my tongue, moratorium (laughs) and government relief schemes such as furlough were just a, a plaster to an inevitable collapse? I certainly the various COVID support schemes, possibly in the case of misguided, have just masked a possible collapse. I think that's certainly true of a number of businesses, because if you have a business which is just not sustainable going forward, you know there are various measures that were put in place. So when you talk about the COVID moratorium, you're probably talking about the, in effect, prohibition on winding up petitions that um, was put in place. So it's very difficult to force a company into an insolvency process during the COVID um, period. And of course, there were lots of government support schemes. Yes, the furlough scheme, but also, of course, the bounce back loan scheme, the the higher value support schemes for, um, for businesses. You know, all of those have inevitably supported a lot of companies that will not be sustainable going forward. And they won't be sustainable for one of two reasons. Either it just was a business that probably would have failed, you know, absent COVID coming, you know, happening and there being various support schemes, or possibly businesses which were viable but are no longer viable because, you know, there has been a shift in, in working patterns which will impact some businesses quite heavily. 
hospitality and retail in particular because you know even though you know i'm sat here in central london you know i look out my window and it's at best i guess two thirds maybe three quarters on a good day what the volume of people are like now and i don't have a crystal ball but you do wonder whether that will change or will stay the same in which case we're facing a new a new normal you know you've got 75% of the footfall in central london and so clearly people aren't going to be spending the same amount of money in central london and that will affect businesses and it will have a a bottom up effect effect essentially as there's less money being spent on the ground um day to day and then that will have an impact first of all on businesses which are in retail units around in central places it will then have an impact on leases those units can command it will then have an impact on the people who own those leases it will you know have a, a big rippling effect i suspect i'd like to take a moment to speak about the university of law which is the university i decided to study my lpc at the university of law is the sponsor of this podcast and makes it possible for us to continue bringing these episodes to you so we really appreciate you supporting us by supporting our sponsors. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief in training students for the real world from the moment they accept a place. The University of Law's experienced career service and award-winning pro bono clinics offer students the chance to get real-life legal experience which can boost employability. They offer a range of undergraduate and postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students excel at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. If you'd like to find out more about the courses on offer, please click the link in the description box of the podcast. I I was actually listening to a, a podcast the other day talking about these kind of schemes. And um, I think a question that got brought up was, do you think that businesses will expect these kind of um, rescue packages for, you, you know, anything and everything now? Do you think that could be the case? They they expect it now because, you know, it's been it's done. An interesting, it's an interesting question. I think that it certainly must raise the expectation if there's a major economic shock that that government will step in to support. I suppose I would balance that with the fact that it, there will be an inherent limit on the amount of support that can be given on a practical level. Um, you know, COVID is a fairly, I hope, unprecedented situation. So you can understand the way in which it's been responded to but yeah i think it probably has raised the bar and the expectation we will see i do think it's a very interesting time but with you know this the huge shift to um the digital world and with all this talk of the metaverse i think it is going to be very interesting to see what happens um I agree. to these these businesses that have been around for um some time that perhaps are not so um <laughs> don't have the ability to to go online. Yeah, I agree. So the Fraser Group acquired Misguided for £20 million via a pre-pack deal. Do you think this was a good move for the uh, Fraser Group? And if you could perhaps start by explaining what a pre-pack deal is. 
Sure. Um, a prepack is a form of insolvency process that emerged um, probably around 10 years ago or more now. And a prepack is a an arrangement where a company which realizes one way or another that it cannot continue in its current form, rather than simply put itself into liquidation or administration and insolvency process, it agrees before it goes into the insolvency process that somebody is going to buy the viable parts of the business and it will then go into that insolvency process so that the buyer can then buy the viable part of the business and the viable bit can carry on. That's what a prepack is. So effectively, it's a pre-agreed deal. Company goes into insolvency, buyer buys the business. Um, it's a pretty well-trodden path these days for a corporate entity. It has attractive negative criticism from time to time. Um, sometimes it's been used perhaps not in the way it was meant for, you know, to try to leave liabilities behind while you know, continuing the business with largely the same ownership. So there have been challenges with it, but it's a fairly well-established mechanism. That's what a prepack is. Nothing wrong with it if it's done properly and is a, you know, can be the best option for creditors and employees and everyone concerned. Whether it's a good deal for the Fraser's group, I don't know. Um, <laughs> they obviously think that having the misguided brand within their books is a good thing. So they're taking a bet on that and that they can no doubt leverage their extensive experience and you know, UK-wide and further afield footprint to make the most of the misguided business. Um, you know, We will see. Ask that question again in a couple of years. Watch this space, everybody. Exactly. <laughs> so what does the acquisition mean for the current misguided board of directors? Will they potentially go with them with the pre-pack deal or left behind? I, I don't know whether the directors went with um went with the business under the deal or not. They may well have done on some sort of provision that in, encouraged them to make the acquisition work long term um i can tell you what it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that if there are issues with the way they ran the misguided business before fraser's bought it out of administration it doesn't mean that the directors won't face scrutiny if there are things they did that they shouldn't have done okay you know all the all the deal all the prepack deal does is allows the business to carry on going forward it doesn't stop the administrators and in due course, no doubt, liquidators, because that's normally what happens when a company goes into administration. It is put into liquidation at a later stage to effectively um, wind down the the old business that's been sold, if that makes sense. Right. They, they won't avoid scrutiny. Will the Fraser Group take on the um, misguided debt as well? Um I don't know all the terms of the deal that's been done. So one of the things that happens when you have a prepack is that the existing debts of the company are left behind and they are dealt with by the past by the the shell of the company if you will that is left behind 
whatever money is made from selling the viable part of the company to a new buyer, in this case, the Fraser's group, is paid to that shell and is distributed to all the creditors. So that's the way it works. So usually you do leave your debts behind. There can, of course, though, be deals that are done around that. You know, when a company like Fraser's Group comes in to buy the business, they might agree as part of the sale to take on certain debts. I don't know the ins and outs of the deal because I'm not involved in it. Um, So that could have happened. But at a simple level, when you go through a pre-pack administration, you know, the debts are left behind. That's the part of the point of the process. Well, thank you very much for clearing that up. I think that's, um, it's, I think it's a quite a complicated and complex um, uh, kind of issue um, surrounding these pre-packs, but uh, you've made it very easy to understand. So thank you. My pleasure. So there's been a number of misguided suppliers that have alleged that the company continued trading and ordering new um, supply despite the prospect of insolvency. Are there grounds here for the suppliers to pursue legal action against uh, misguided? That's a difficult question. There could be grounds to pursue legal action by the suppliers. Um, the The first point to make on that is that the suppliers' claims will be against the misguided entity before the sale to Fraser's group. Now, any claims they have will probably just be what are called unsecured claims, i.e. they just have a simple contract. They don't have any form of security. You know, for example, you, you know, if a bank lends money to buy a house, they take security over the house. They have security. They're a secured creditor. Many many, if not most, of the suppliers will not be secured because that's not the way it works. So all they will have is a paper claim against the insolvent shell of the misguided entity that's been left behind following the prepack. Those claims will only be worth pence in the pound, probably, depending on how much money is, is recovered through the sale of misguided assets. So the claims against the retailer are on are not going to be worth a huge amount. There could be claims, in theory, against the directors of Misguided. You know, you say that they continue trading and ordering new supply despite the prospect of insolvency. You know, it does raise a type of claim you can bring in an insolvency situation uh, on a number of bases. The one that is often cited is wrongful trading. You know, this is where company directors who realize or should have realized that the company has no prospect of involve, of avoiding insolvent liquidation or administration. So they have no prospect of avoiding insolvency, effectively. They carry on trading the business anyway, and they increase the detriment to the company as a whole. Now, that last sentence is important, that it's detriment to company as a whole, because if they have continued taking orders from new suppliers, they might have increased their creditors as a whole, i.e. the people that the company owes money to. But that doesn't necessarily mean they've increased the deficit to the company as a whole. Because if you look at a balance sheet, 
you have people that the company owes money to, and you have assets of the company and included within that people that owe money to the company. And for a wrongful trading claim, you have to look at a balance sheet rather than a simple level of creditors. So level of creditors could increase and sometimes does increase a lot. But if you if your balance sheet is left in a in a sort of net similar position, i.e. because you're you might have increased your creditors but you've reduced your liabilities, then that might make a wrongful trading claim hard to pursue. These are complicated claims, um, and you have to look at this loss position in particular very carefully if you ever come to bring them. I have no idea whether or not those claims might be available within Misguided, um, but somebody I'm sure will look at that in due course. So let me just see if I've wrapped my head around this. Um, a company can carry on um, trading and order from suppliers if they if they are in debt, because I suppose that's how business operates. But if they know that they are insolvent or um, uh, or will be insolvent, that's when they should not be ordering more stock. Yeah, in short, there could be grounds for them to pursue legal action. Um, the point about them pursuing a claim against the retailer is that because they're probably unsecured creditors, their claim against the retailer will just be a claim in the insolvency process. So all they would get is whatever is available to the shell of the company that is left behind after they've sold the business onto the Fraser's group. And those proceeds will be distributed to all of those suppliers pro rata to the amounts they're owed. And typically, unsecured creditors can expect to have a very significant discount on the amounts they're owed. Um, There could be grounds to pursue claims, for example, wrongful trading claims against the directors, which would be pursued by the administrators or any subsequent liquidators. Now, the thing I would say about those claims is they are very complicated. They they aren't straightforward and they require a lot of consideration. One of the points that sometimes is raised is that a company, although it is insolvent, it continues to take on large amounts of credit. So it continues to take stock from its suppliers. And so the amount that it owes to its suppliers goes up by a significant amount in the period when the directors should have known the company was insolvent. Now, on the face of it, that leads to suppliers to say, well, hang on a minute, you know, on the day that the company directors should have known it was insolvent, they owed me £100,000 and now they owe me a million pounds. You know, they should be liable for the difference. Unfortunately, the way wrongful trading claims work isn't as simple as that. And actually, the liability of the directors is based on the overall net position of the company. Because although the company might have taken on more credit, so it's increased its liabilities to its suppliers, if it's also reduced its own liabilities, you would then look at the net position of the company because the company has people it owes money to and it has assets it owns and it has its own liabilities. If you increase your creditors but you reduce your liabilities, you might find that on a net basis there's no actual difference as far as the company is concerned. And that can, not always, but it can be a defence to a claim for wrongful trading. They're complicated claims. 
maybe they exist in this case, but that's something the administrators or liquidators in due course will have to look at. Well, thank you for explaining that so clearly. Um, so say that there was a claim here for um, wrongful trading. What are, the, what are the positives that could come out of it? You know, is it is it worth the suppliers going after um, or pursuing legal action if if the you know if the company doesn't have any money to pay out? Well, whether it's worth doing will be something the administrators will look at because if you pursue a wrongful trading claim or any claim against the directors of the company or indeed any other parties who've been involved with the company who are liable, the end result of those claims is normally in order that somebody, if it's a claim against the directors, it would be the directors, will have to pay money back into the the old company estate, if you will, and that money will then be used to pay the creditors of the company. Whether that's worth doing depends on the value of the claim. You know, if the numbers are very, very significant, you know, if millions and millions of pounds is owed, and if claims can be bought against the directors which are viable and which will result in them paying large sums of money back into the company, then yes, it is worth doing on behalf of the directors. This is something that professional insolvency practitioners look at very closely. Um, and in in a lot of cases, you know, they recover huge amounts of money. Um I think there have been some recent examples, you know, there's, I mean, the misguided cases at early stages, I'm not aware of any claims having been brought uh, so far. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But you could look at cases like Patisserie Valerie, where large amounts of money, um, I think, have been recovered to go back to pay the creditors in that case. Um, we had the um, the Debenhams um, case. Um, involving Philip Green, I think, and money's going back in into the pot in that one. Um, there's numerous cases where actions are bought by liquidators and insolvency office holders to recover monies, which ultimately go to the creditors. It happens very frequently. Um, when you say creditors, I mean, sorry, uh, directors, claim against the directors, do you mean the, the company or the di- directors as, you know, individual people or because I was under the impression that was there was a corporate veil that protected the directors as individual people is that correct that's right so in general terms a company is its own legal entity and so if you have a claim against a company particularly a limited company which is limited by um, the value of its stock then all you can do is sue the company you can't sue any of the shareholders or the directors except in very exceptional circumstances in the cases of fraud and scenarios like that. So you would have to sue the company and the company can't pay you. You could liquidate the company, but you know that won't necessarily get you paid. When a company goes into liquidation or administration or an, an insolvency process, I suppose you could say the corporate veil is lifted in the sense that when liquidators are appointed over that company, they take over the company. And if the the, the directors of the company or anyone who's acted in the same position as a director, so sort of senior management, if they have done things which aren't appropriate or they've infringed 
provisions such as the wrongful trading provisions or they breach their duty to the company or its creditors in the circumstances I've described, then liquidators and administrators can sue the directors individually. So that is a an exception to the corporate veil principle you have talked about. And it happens quite frequently. It's not good news for directors if you go into insolvent liquidation because an insolvency practitioner will look at what's happened and if there are claims, they m- might well bring them. Very interesting. Thank you. So if there's any future directors listening to the show, um, directors beware. <laughs> so who else could have misguided owed money to? Because um, you, you've spoken about, you know, um, kind of what they call it, the 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 order that people get paid and suppliers are at the bottom. Um yeah, so who, who else do, could a company owe money to when going into administration? Well, typically you would see a secure creditor. So most com- most businesses have a bank that provides them a bank facility, and they're often secured against the overall business and assets of the company. And they tend to sit at the top of the chain because they're secured. Secure creditors come first. Um, you do then have an order of priority of creditors. So you 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 have preferential creditors. The HMRC are now again a preferential creditor. So they would come out after secured creditors, but um, but before your general body of unsecured creditors, you will always see HMRC generally in the list of creditors because there's always a tax liability that is often unpaid at the point a company goes into an insolvency process. You will then have employees. You know, employees will be owed money, owed money typically. They have a lots of legislation about how they are dealt with in an insolvency process. And then you'll have a whole range of different suppliers, you know, ranging from your, you know, suppliers of clothes and products in the case of misguided to your energy suppliers, to your council tax, to your, um, you know, you name it, like all of the ancillary suppliers that a business would have. So you mentioned that creditors are, you know, usually secured. (sighs) How do they ensure, is is there a way to ensure that they get their money back? Has there ever been any circumstances where, you know, a bank hasn't been paid? There are lots of circumstances where a bank, even though it's secured, won't have be paid in full. You know, depending on, it all depends on how much money is owed at the point a company goes, goes into an insolvency process and whether or not enough can be recovered to pay them back. You know, in big cases, especially fraud cases, you know, even the banks will not get all of their money back. So plenty of cases like that. Unsecured creditors typically, you know, often don't get a huge amount of money back. If you're an unsecured creditor, the way to ensure you get paid is challenging. There are things you can do. You can retain title on your stock that you provide until you've been paid for it. But that is a that's a separate podcast <laughs> um, mm-hmm. on how that works and and how you would do that and the pros and cons and the pitfalls you have around that. The best thing that you can do as a supplier is try not to allow the credit, your credit balances to build up in terms of how much you're owed too far. Um, you know, have a very efficient invoice and, and debt management process so that you don't find yourself heavily exposed. Um, but it can be difficult. You know, you can't insist on ROT, on, on retention of title terms, even let alone any more draconian terms generally, if you're a supplier. So, you know, it's part of the business you're in and it's a risk you take. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what, um, just talking about that, it's reminded me of the um, the 
uh, real estate you know crisis that's going on in China. What was the, the company that Evergrande? Yes, yes. That, I think that's a, a, a perfect example of a um, a company not paying its or not able to pay its creditors. Completely. So, Alex, you've just ever so slightly touched on employees there, and it has been reported that some of misguided employees were made redundant through an automated message, and some of them just found out through social media. Are there any legal implications for dismissing employees in this manner? And if there's not, I mean, is it advisable to do so, what with the negative press it can attract? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, It's an employment question that comes up a lot in insolvency cases. It's not my field directly, and it's one that normally a lot of advice is taken on uh, when that situation arises. Um, whether it's advisable to do it in the way that it was done in the misguided case, uh, you, you know, you can. I haven't. I'm not able to comment on directly. Particularly, you can see it's not a attractive way of doing it in in many respects. Perhaps there were good reasons to do it in the way they did in that case. Um, but it's normally something that is a lot of care and attention is given to because obviously you're dealing with individuals who, you know, who, whose livelihoods are being affected. Well, thank you for sharing that. So should the likes of, um, well, should other online fashion giants such as Pretty Little Thing and um, Shein be, I think I've pronounced that correctly, so, you know, the, the new major fast fashion retailer who I think that a lot of um, younger people are obsessed with, um, I should perhaps get on the bandwagon. So do you think that they should be taking note of misguided downfall? And what lessons should retailers in distressed situations take from this? I'm sure they'll all be watching this very carefully. You know, yeah. they'll look very carefully at the way of the business model and the similarities and areas that they can take note from, um, certainly. Um, it's not one I have huge expertise in per se in the retail space, but the retailers undoubtedly will be looking at this very closely, Stephanie. Well, thank you for sharing that. And if anybody does want to catch up on um, the, well, catch up on you know, the story behind Misguided, um, there is quite an interesting documentary about it on Netflix that that shows um, the, the previous CEO's, I would say frivolous spending, but it's the way that he ran Misguided, which I thought was quite interesting. So we're approaching the end of the interview now. Um, so, Alex, I just have one final question for you. And that would be, um, do you have any words of wisdom for our aspiring lawyer listeners? You're coming into a phase of the profession and in, indeed the world when you know the global situation is in a state of flux. There's lots of interesting developments going on in the law at the moment, be that through tech, be that through the changing working patterns we have. There are a lot of interesting areas to be in. Um, in terms of words of wisdom, you know, finding an area that you are interested in, focusing on, you know, developing your own knowledge at a young age, including your own contact base, all of the people that you're discussing things with and are interested in, and you're listening to this podcast and you're talking about in issues which are genuine issues, which you know, may, if you've come out of a pure university or academic um, part of your career, seem quite abstract, but believe me, they, they are real issues that you have to translate into life in real cases, as you will find. 
you know, get to know as much as you can, talk to as many people as you can, uh, and, you know, find an area that you're interested in. I'm sure you'll do very well in the long term. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing all of your words of wisdom during the podcast today. Um, I think that, well, when I'm reading um, news articles, I think that I'll definitely be able to perhaps review them now with more of an insolvency eye. So thank you for that. Um, And thank you for being a guest on the podcast. I've had a great time chatting with you and um, learned a lot. My absolute pleasure. And if anyone has any questions, then my details are available online. Happy to chat anytime. And thank you for organising, Stephanie. It was very interesting to partake in. It was my pleasure. Um, And thank you to all the listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Student Lawyer Podcast. And we'll see you back here next time. To hear more of the Student Lawyers podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com.